0: N E T S U I T E dot com slash <laughs> W T F. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. This is it. How's it going on today's show? Jackson Brown. I talked to Jackson Brown. Uh, This is yet another Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member to be on the show this year. We've had quite a few already. Rolling Stone listed him as one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He's got a new album coming out this summer, and I got the opportunity. It's been on the books for a while. We did uh, do it on Zoom, but uh, Jackson Brown has been around a long time. He's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. Uh, No matter what you think of your music, his life is actually a little more incredible, I think, than, look, the music is great. Jackson Brown is Jackson Brown. I love some Jackson Brown songs. That first Jackson Brown record was, you know, an amazing record. But I was also sort of curious about the uh, Velvet underground Nico connection. Why did Nico and how did Nico uh, do uh, the first version of These Days? And he played on it. How did that happen? How does Jackson Brown end up on Nico's first record? What the fuck is that about? Well, th- so I had some questions. I had some sort of specific questions, uh, LA scene questions, and it turned out to be a pretty great conversation. I've always heard he's a great guy. I don't know what I was expecting, but people I trust and know in music and in life love the guy. And the reason is is because he's a, he's a, he's one of the guys, man. and you know, and he's he's seen it all. And there's apparently some stuff. Obviously, you know, after I talk to him, my buddy Flanagan gets in touch with me, and he's like, "Did you ask him about the Hendrix thing?" I'm like, "No, no, man. How? No, I didn't. I didn't know. I can't do everything." And the people, when I mention that I'm going to talk to people, I've already talked to them, so I wasn't, I couldn't. Doesn't matter. There's plenty here. So Jackson Brown is on the show, uh, which is exciting. Quick cat update: Sammy's relentless fucking relentless does not take no will not fucking well, it's a cat he's a cat but it would an aggressive little fucker i think he's gonna be a stout little mother too a stout little dude you know he's not gonna be lanky he's gonna be he's gonna have that uh you know that kind of almost a bulldoggy kind of uh cat thing it looks like like fonda was like that it's a little muscle just a little not a little, little, little muscle man But uh, I'm having a good time. There's literally a 1,000 cat toys all over my house. And now for the rest of my life, I will find them under things, squeezed into things, in between things. You know, some places that you never really thought a cat toy could get to. I lost the top of a Liberty drinking bottle that I know Buster was playing with weeks ago. And in my aggravation, I went and ordered like three or four bottles and an extra top. And then like two days ago, out of nowhere, and my house has been cleaned several times since. Uh, there, he's playing with the top. I don't know where he was hiding it. I don't know what happened to it. But now it's back. But you know, I, I like the bottles. So I, it's not terrible. But I, yeah, I do the spite-driven purchases, too. It's crazy, man. I, I get mad at myself and I buy. That doesn't matter. I'm just trying to breathe, man. I'm just trying to breathe. I'm just trying to exist. Oh, my God. I talked to you guys about that painting. Uh, that, you know, the the Lynn Shelton painting and, you know, figuring out that it probably wasn't the Lynn Shelton that I knew and loved it was this other guy. Well, if you're following the story, I'll just bring you up to speed. I, I set uh, my IG crew on a research project and, you know, some of them found a piece of art from 1965 on an, in an auction, an abstract painting by Lynn Shelton from 1965. And then some others found this Carl Springer furniture, uh, some of which was... Um, painted by a painter named Lynn Shelton, New York Times article. He referred to him as a, he was a, an engineer. He went to engineering school and then uh, did this uh, interesting abstract work on, on paper, large pieces painted uh, on paper and then enameled onto furniture. Uh, there was just a passing bit of information that he was a, a teacher of some kind in uh, California, but there's just no, all the leads die out. So I've got this this piece by this Lynn Shelton and I you know somebody found it up for auction, some of the furniture that he had done the painting on. It does look a bit like the painting. And um but Carl Springer, who has passed away, the furniture maker designer, he still has, you know, uh, a shop or there's you know, there's a Carl Springer collection that they keep making or something, a gallery. But I reached out to them to ask them if they had any information about this Lynn Shelton that used to paint on paper, that was put on to some of Carl Springer's furniture and enameled on there. A guy got back to me immediately and called me. He said, yes, they did that collaboration years ago. He said that he, he doesn't know what happened to that guy. The last he heard, maybe it was in the 90s from him or about him, but he's just kind of the Lynn Shelton that probably did the painting I have and definitely did that work on uh, the Carl Springer furniture. It's just gone. Alive, dead, don't know. Relatives, don't know. So that's, the, we just hit a dead end. So until family members or somebody who knew him, I have no idea who Lynn Shelton, the painter, was, who collaborated with Carl Springer and most likely did the abstract that is on paper that is hanging in my bedroom right now in 1983. Uh, no, I have no information. It's kind of odd, given the internet and given the fact that he did some stuff. But that's where that goes. I've 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 pursued it as far as I can, and uh, that's where we're at with that. I do guess I can tell you this. I can. I went to a screener of respect, the Aretha Franklin biopic that I'm in, not knowing anything about the movie, just knowing you know my experience in being in it, and it was a small screening room. Brought my friend Kit, my manager, and his wife were there. And some other lady whose son works at the production company or something. And we watched the movie. And it's a big movie. And everybody's pretty great in it. It's Forrest Whitaker and Jennifer Hudson and uh, Marlon Wayans, Mark Maron, and some other people and Mark Maron. And Mark Maron's in it with Jennifer Hudson, Mark Maron, and Jennifer Hudson are in it, Forrest Whitaker. I I, I don't want to... There's a lot of great people in it. This isn't a plug for the movie yet. I'm sure that will happen. But I was impressed with the movie. It looked great. She sounded great. I did pretty good. I thought I was good. Uh, All the stuff that I shot is really in the movie, except for like one line. It's like four or five scenes. And it really takes on Aretha Franklin's entire life. Uh, up until like 72 until she gets goes back and records that uh, gospel record. And it Lizel Tommy did a great job. The movie looks great. And it's quite uh, an undertaking and it's I'm excited for it to come out I'm excited for you to see it and I and I just thank God that I liked it. Does that make sense to you? Does it It's great to be involved with something that you can honestly say uh is great i'll tell you more about it uh, during the sanctioned period of promotion but that was my experience with it the other day jackson brown is here as i mentioned and i didn't know what to expect and i wasn't expecting a lot necessarily you know i know about as much about jackson brown as anyone does you know the songs you know uh that there's some darkness there and but you don't I don't I didn't know what to expect. And as I said before, so many people I know love the guy and it was it was actually great talking to him and just kind of letting his brain skip around in the history of music, modern music that he was involved with and the people he knew. It was just a fun talk. I don't know if I've got the details that you want. But I had a good time talking to him. So this is me talking to Jackson Brown. His new album, Downhill From Everywhere, comes out on July 23rd. are you at your studio that i played at once yeah i'm actually in the room next door where you play that place is great man it is it is thank you uh,
1: i and we're we're having the best time this place runs so well all kinds of great people coming through here um ben Montentious. just mixing his album next door right now with Jonathan
0: Wilson and uh it sounds really great. But how long have you had that place down there? It's where was it? It's in Venice? Is it in Venice or Santa Monica or Long Beach? It's in Santa Monica. And I've had it yeah, yeah. about 30 years. 30 years? 30, yeah. 30. And do you yeah. just do you just rent it out or how does it work? Well, I mean is it actually- just has it been <laughs>
1: No, I own it. I own the building, but I, I I used to rent it. The landlord was so cool. He just said, he came in after about a year and said, oh my God, you've made all these leasehold improvements. He, you don't even own the place. And I said, well, you know, we had no choice. We had to, we have to have the studio the way we, you know, we, we built it, you know, we built it out. Yeah. It, was, it had been a machine shop. He was really cool. And then he stopped charging his uh, increase of living, uh, you know, on the rent and stuff. And
0: so yeah, we've been here for a long time. But do you like when, when in terms of people recording there? Is that something that do you do you do they pay for studio time? Is that what, no, a yeah. source of income? Yeah, yeah. if yeah. they have the money, they do.
1: If <laughs> a lot of my friends have recorded here without paying, because you know the you know, not everybody's got a budget or they don't have they they need to spend it on the players or something. I mean, yeah, it's not booked all the time, you know. Yeah. So I, my my best friends know that it's dark part of the time. So
0: that's the part. That's the time they want. That time I'm not going to sell. In. Yeah. I like the new record, by the way. And oh, I think that, you. like you know, that uh, downhill from everywhere, that title track, that's got a little edge to it. There, Jackson, mm. you got it's got right. a little little <laughs> little punch to it. Yeah. Thank you. Who's that guitar player? Who's who's making that dirty noise? That's Greg
1: Leese. Well, both there's two guitar players on that track. Well, there's three, but you don't count me. I'm like the I'm I'm playing the really simple stuff underneath, but that's Greg Lee's and Val McCallum. They're in my band, but um, oh yeah, they're also is- extremely you know in demand all over the place. I mean, yeah, that that evolved out of uh, another song, and it, I wanted to sort of turn the corner, yeah, and be something that was really you know fun to listen to without having to listen to if you know what I mean.
0: But there's a it's definitely there's a menacing message to it, right under there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the ocean, but the, I, I maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. But it sounds like, uh, are you aware that all the garbage is going into the ocean? Yeah. Is that what's happening exact, in that song?
1: Yeah, that's it. It was <laughs> okay. it was based on a remark by this oceanographer named Captain Charles Moore, the guy who discovered the Great Pacific. Are garbage patches they call it the the, 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 the cole- circle the collection the garbage swirl yeah the garbage swirl in the middle well there are actually five of them now <laughs> they're like they're in all the oceans but he's the first guy that found himself in the middle of it and said what is this what's going on and and began to document it and that was not that long ago about 10 or 15 years ago and yeah and everybody said whoa what's happening here but yeah it's he simply said the oceans downhill from everywhere so yeah, right. it's going to get everything
0: that humanity does is going to collect there and um it is and, and and that's where that's yeah I mean you can feel it in the song cuz like yeah it's sort of a a list of things you know but uh but I I think that the guitars and and the sort of tone of it you know as catchy or as as driving as it is you're sort of like oh it's a little dark that's good yeah dark is good yeah. dark is good Sure at, man right
1: about now yeah
0: but I didn't realize, you know, looking back at some of this stuff about you, like, I, I mean, I know the old house, you know, I, I you know, the, I lived in Highland Park for years and, oh, yeah, yeah, and a, a, a woman I was seeing lived right there uh, on Echo. Oh, yeah. Like, right up, yeah. Hmm. And there used to be like, you know, that's like uh, Jackson Brown's family's house. I'm like, really? And then there was like uh, a couple people were like, yeah, I think that they rent it out for porn now. I'm like, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, well, my brother lives there, and oh. he does
1: rent it out to film companies, but I don't know if, if they do porn. They might've, he might have rented it out to a couple of porn. I really don't know. And I don't, I'm not around there when they're filming. Yeah, That's kind of a disquieting thought, really, because, you know, this, this house has a chapel and a dungeon. It's got a, it's got a- A dungeon? Yeah, it's got a- Who built the house? My grandfather built it. With a dungeon. What was up with him? Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what we wanted to know. What was up with grandpa? <laughs> you no, know, there was a there was a cell in the dungeon with this very small it sort of looked like a Charles Adams door, like this tiny four and a half foot door with a yeah. you know, a grate in the middle of it and it was a rounded top door, like you and you'd you'd pull it open. There was a one arm bandit in there, like a a slot machine from uh-huh. from early days of slot machines and had a couple of dimes in there. And we were always trying to figure out how to get those dimes because we, th- we thought they might be worth a lot of money. And we played, everybody played in our yard. It was the place, it was the place to play.
0: But that's where you grew up from what age? Like, you know, when did you get there? From three till I was about 13. So it was your grandfather's house, but your parents lived there too? My grandfather passed away before I was
1: born. My fa- oh. My parents met in Germany, or no, my parents met in Alaska, but, my, but they were living in Germany when they had... Us kids, the three of us. Yeah, and uh, military. Yeah, my father worked for the newspaper, news, army newspaper. I had he'd been in the news, uh, military, but we weren't. Uh, he wasn't in the military when he had the family. He was working for the Stars and Stripes newspaper, and they were. It was after the war, and they were just living in you know living in Europe, and actually having a, a pretty grand time. They hmm. they lived they lived we lived in a house that we they were sort of billeted by the army in a place. We sh- were shared by several other families. This, yeah. With this massive staircase. I think it had, was, had been the mansion of some industrialist or something. And the house was, you know, requisitioned or like would give, given to, you know, these three different families yeah. we to live in. And they called it Chateau Mont. I don't know where the name came from, but I've got a souvenir of a party where my father's, Playing piano with Django Reinhardt, really? Like Django's like playing guitar. My father's, you know, like and playing the piano in the background. And I I think he had told my mother, "Get the camera, get the camera," because yeah. he could find Django Reinhardt, which was not always that easy, and and hire him for these parties. So, um, yeah, they had a lot of parties. My father, my father told me when I was growing up, he said that the army, being in the army, was the best time, best years of his life, and that they were his best years because he didn't have to think. Yeah, and I was. You know like 14 and thinking that's not good that's what are you
0: what are you saying <laughs> you know <laughs> you they just told me to, what to do you know. i didn't need to think <laughs> yeah so um well maybe he was young and he
1: needed that well i think i get it now i understand now at the time i thought sounded to me like it was a bad you know just to take a few years off in the middle of your life and just do whatever they tell you to do he didn't need the discipline not one of those kids no no, well nah. he did steal a sailboat and sail to Catalina when he was sixteen. This is one of the things he was very proud of. He it was during Prohibition. I mean he didn't make it he didn't explain anything else about it. He said he stole a sailboat. And I went, Well and i, I think <laughs> he didn't look like the per, kind of person who would steal anything. But he right. did he'd make off with somebody's boat and go play in bars and, and well in speakeasies. Piano? And yeah. Yeah. So he was a real musician. Oh yeah. My father could play. And and um he always had a band we had jam sessions in that house that you know where there were you know just 30 or 40 people and the, the entire top of the piano was covered I mean just solid bottles oh really you know so it was, he was like it was no yeah he was a drinker but they all drank that was really the 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 I think the clarion call of the day was you know to drink to hold that you you know they didn't call them alcoholics they said Sure. sure they could hold their liquor yeah yeah
0: but then, but yeah but then but it sort of sets the stage in your mind for whatever you know la became i would imagine in the uh late 60s mm. i mean you know just sort of like keep drinking all night and keep playing all night was i think a lot of great things came out of that yeah i think so yeah i think
1: rock and roll is founded on sort of you know on just keeping going on 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 sort of taking it beyond the limits and and seeing see what's there see what you got and there were some years where I didn't sleep very much, you know, and uh, <laughs> that was yeah. I mean, if you you were young and you could do that, you know, and it didn't really it came out of your hide, but there was
0: lots of hide to go. You know, you had lots of lots left. I wouldn't I
1: wouldn't do it now.
0: <laughs> no, I don't know how the hell there's I mean, I'm 57. I don't I don't know how old you are, but there there's a few guys that I think are still added occasionally, but not the way they used to. I think there's a few guys around. that will do a bump here and there just to yeah. kind of. Get ready to do the thing, you know. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, you know. the last time I was offering a coke, I was like, Ugh, "No, yeah, we don't want to open that door." It's like,
0: yeah, uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> I can't even imagine it.
1: Yeah. I can't, like, yeah. I can't. Yeah,
0: I don't want to let myself imagine it too much. No, yeah, it was a, a lot of time wasted, uh, yeah. in a way. But there were yeah. some good times. Well, like every everything that you really do in excess,
1: I mean, the 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 the. the initial you know excitement and exhilaration goes and then and then you're just doing it to you know yeah you know it's not it doesn't it doesn't have the same effect whether it's- well it's
0: just interesting to me like you know you're going to tour with James Taylor right right I mean I talked to that guy I mean out of all the guys in the world that you would you you know you wouldn't think would you know be driven by being strung out or jacked on blow it's you two and it turns out like you know you guys did your time that's for sure everybody did yeah <laughs>
1: well, James, is, uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, really, I can't really say that I spent time getting high with James. N- James, no, no, basic, I just mean that he was. But he's rehabilitated, you know, kind of before. Sure. he kind of went through all that before everybody. I know.
0: I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he got well. He was strung out with the first generation, yeah. of dope guys, right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, bad too. Bad. Like he was, yeah. he was hardcore bad. Well, I could see his music is a little more like I could see where that comes from the darkness, but yours is like i mean, but it's i mean some of your stuff's pretty kind of you know fun, and I guess the you others know, that first that first bump is pretty fun, <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, I always thought that
1: that you should music should be really it should be fun to listen to w- without even listening to the lyrics you should be able it should you know the music should be fun to listen to.
0: No, I think like like I was surprised though. Like, so you grew up in Highland Park for you know till you're a teenager, and then what'd you do, man? You split. My father realized that I was carrying weapons. <laughs> you were carrying weapons. Weapons. What do you mean? I mean, like, like
1: his straight edge razor. I don't know what I was doing with these weapons, except that it was it was tough. Highland Park was tough. I think it still is tough in parts. And um, yeah. So the kids, I was running around. I was 13 or 14, I and mean, I wasn't cutting anybody, right? And he just I. N- not just that I think he just see that I mean there were also some parties that you know for my sister's birthday party I mean she was when she turned 14 or 15 there were like 40 vatos in our yard trying to get into the party you know yeah so he just realized it was time to move and they moved us to Orange County where he had you know, a job prospect and my mom I could you know teach she was becoming a substitute te- teacher so they just yeah. moved us to a sort of you know supposedly wholesome suburban environment and um uh, we kept the house of course and and rented out to people and and um, later I moved back there around the time I had my first child right actually right at that time yeah I went and lived there and was so I was a I was a father in that house where where I was a ch- you know child and What year? Let's see. Uh 73 maybe?
0: Oh so later but like what is what is this like how I guess my question is is like that song you know these days and and that whole sort of a uh, uh the uh, Nico connection and Chelsea Girl record. I mean, that like it, it feels to me like there was a moment there in your life and in your career that it could have went a totally different way. Hmm. I mean, like, wh- how did you hook up with those? Because you're right in it. In like when she's just getting done with the Velvet Underground. I mean, like those two paths. Yeah. I mean, and you definitely crossed them. I mean, what was the story? Behind that song and, and being on that record. Well, that was one of my songs and I sang I, I was a songwriter
1: and I'd gone to New York with friends too who were on their way to Europe. They were on their way to find a cheap tramp steamer, you know, the legendary sort of, you know, tramp steamer to, yeah. to Europe. And they had already tried finding one in Veracruz and it didn't work out. So they, they 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 invited me to go with them to have a third person to pay for gas and we drove across the country and then I was there, and I was staying on the floor of, uh, of the apartment of this friend of mine who was um, had also gone to the same high school as me. And so th- there was a gig where Tim Buckley was playing with Nico, and we knew Tim Buckley because we'd played in these clubs together in San... And uh, Well, I say played together. I mean, he played the club. He had the, the paying gigs at these clubs. Right. We were just hung around. We were like part of this folky crowd in Orange County but he played all over the place. So anyway, after that gig and he, he opened for Nico or she opened for him. I'm not sure how it went, uh, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but she was playing and you get a picture of her sitting behind a bar with Sterling Morrison accompanying her. And Sterling Morrison was one of the guys in the velvet underground. Yeah. And that, what I was told was that they were taking turns accompanying her while she got. And so that sometimes Lou would do it. And sometimes John Cale K- would do it. And, uh, but she needed an accompanist and Tim Buckley called me like a couple of days after we saw him play with her and said that she had asked him to accompany her and he he kind of cracked up he said I don't think she realizes that I have gigs you know that there's like <laughs> that I have you know and so yeah, he's a working guy yeah so um do you do you want to do this and I I I went and played for her and it it worked out great so
0: she hired me she hired you for for as, that record as an, or to no, tour with her as an accompanist and how old are you, like 18? Yeah, 18. <laughs> so,
1: um, yeah, and, and so, I, you know, I'd play it for her at the Dom, and then, then they said, okay, we're going to have some recording se- sessions, and you'll play on the songs of hers. That she-. And then she started, do- she started doing some of my songs. She started doing These Days, and she st- started doing uh, The fairest of the Seasons, which I had written with Greg Copeland, who was the, one of those guys that was on his way to Europe and passing through. And by, the, by this time, they had split, I think. They had already gone. Gone. but
0: but so but but so you had a, how many songs did you have at 18 i mean had you landed like you'd written songs for other people at that point already did you, you have know, a hit um no actually but my friend greg the guy i just mentioned had
1: a um we'd been assigned by electra's publishing company so we literally had we literally had a publisher and i was making demos for those songs with one of their producers uh on a nagra in his apartment, you know. And then on another occasion in the studio, but they were sort of and I had about 30 songs, you know. So and um they they decided to make the make this into a publishing demo, but you know, normally they would just put whatever song they wanted to get to the artist on an acetate, which is a kind of it's, it's just it's just temporary um, it's like a record a recording that's that's cut on a lathe it's not pressed so you and eventually it wears out you can you got maybe several couple dozen playings and it gets scratchier and scratchier and then but they it's it's how they got songs to artists and then they decide well you got so many and we want to get them to a lot of people so they just press this thing up so there are still some copies of this thing floating around I've personally defaced quite a few of them because I sang I and I didn't sing well you know I, and for a long time, I thought, "No, nah, I don't really want these to fall into the wrong hands." Of course, they're they are. You can you can. They're find out them. there. They're out there.
0: But the but thing just is, that song like these days, like that's such a beautiful song, and it's like, and it was on that that record. It, it just it, you know, and I guess well, it, this is a known thing, but it it just seems almost that world of of the Velvet Underground, of Warhol, and, and of Nico and her sort of mysterious yeah, yeah. kind of life. Did you you guys dated briefly or? Well, I wouldn't call it dating. All right, <laughs> but, yeah, but but you know, there was this.
1: It was everybody, as far as yeah. I know, everybody slept with everybody. But sure. it was sure. like Biz yeah. uh, briefly, yeah, very briefly. She had, you know, she was amazing in that she had, She was, she was this very beautiful, and very sort of arctic, sort of aloof kind of presence. Yeah. And largely because she felt that way a lot around people. She was not that, she was not. Right. But she had a son and Ari was really young, maybe maybe two, maybe two and a half or something. Uh-huh. She had a son with um, Alain Delon and, and not a relationship with him. And she was a single mother. She was working at night, you know. She yeah. had a babysitter and I don't know. She was, um, but she was wonderfully... She was fun, you know. She was she was that sort of. If you see her in La Dolce Vita, you know, it's that that fun kind of hat. It's like, like a very girlish, beautiful, yeah. young girlish kind of quality that she had. Yeah. And she was smart. She was really smart, and she was she was she had very accelerated tastes in music. Like she she hung around with Ornette Coleman, you know. She was like she she thought the birds were great, by the way, and everybody in New York. Th- were sort of against. They sort of had an attitude about California.
0: The anti-birds. Ex-
1: they weren't anti, but I just think they just assumed they knew that they just sort of. I think they were dismissive of most things California, but um, not nah, people in California didn't care. I mean, actually, but I mean, she she liked she liked she liked the birds because of Roger McGuinn's solo in Eight Miles High. She thought it was like really avant-garde and really. Oh, wow. And, of course, it was um, influenced by um, John Coltrane, you know, and that, the birds were very progressive, so, and she dug that. She was just sort of, um, you know, she she wanted to do, and, and for that reason, she didn't really like Chelsea Girls because when they made that record, everybody recorded the songs that they had written with her, like Lou Reed played on the songs that he had written. I played on the songs that I wrote there were, I think I also accompanied her on a couple of things like there was a Tim Harden song what she was doing was very much like what Judy Collins was doing in that same period which is to say that she was finding great songs by great writers and then cu- curating them into this great you know collection of songs and it was a lot like um you know, also Linda Ronstadt did that later, and and Bonnie Raitt. But Judy Collins was sort of the master of that, and she had put all those songs together of Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell and and, right. uh, Jacques, yeah. and Jacques Brel or a deep cut from Donovan or something. So, Nico's where there was a cut. There was a song that that no one had ever heard that Bob Dylan wrote called "I'll Keep It with Mine." There was a um, Tim Hardin song called "Eulogy for Lenny Lenny Bruce." And what there was, was a, that?
0: What was that guy like? Did you know Hardin?
1: I met him a couple times. Hey, man! Well, heavy. I yeah, I met him. I didn't. The second time I met him, I didn't. I didn't particularly, you know. He was he was being an asshole, but yeah. And I didn't understand why <laughs> why he would be. I had actually met him before that, and this is this is unbelievable, but like my sister brought him to our house in Orange County. She had met him at a club. Uh huh. And kind of came to my our house to wake up my little brother to get a condom from him. <laughs> <laughs> this is at two in the morning or something. The stores are closed and my sister comes. At your says, house. At my house. Yeah. And yeah. Tim, and they were in the company of Monty Dunn, who was, a, I don't know if you know who Monty Dunn was, but a legendary guitar player. From the East Coast, these guys are both East Coast people, and they're playing yeah. the Golden Bear, which is like, you know, 30 miles away. It's at the beach, right? So they go inland yeah. to find a kind um, of... So your
0: sister, so he could sweep with your sister.
1: Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, but, so there's a piano in the living room, and he sits down and starts playing the piano. And once again, it's like two in the morning. My father, yeah. My father comes out and just stands there listening to him play. <laughs> And he's yeah. singing, it's Tim Harden singing, You Kiss Me and Call Me Johnny When You Know My Name Is Tim. And he's really good. And like, my father just sees the whole situation. My father, in his kind of abiding jazz era wisdom, just sort of stand, yeah. stands there in the doorway listening, sees as my sister bolts back out the door with her two East Coast friends and her girlfriend, and, you know, yeah. everybody goes back it- to sleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That was the first time you met
1: Tim Harden. Yeah, but I didn't meet him. I was just like a, you know, in my pajamas at the end of the hall and watching. And, uh, but, you know, later it, this record of his comes out with You Look to Me Like Misty Roses and Reason to Believe was the great song that everybody went nuts for. Right, and also right, believe. Yeah, and, we, and I noticed that the, like a couple years later was that people like that, I mean, he was such a stylist and he sang the way he sang. I mean, there was just him you know, channeling all this great blues music that he'd sung, and he, he was undeniably great, but like he, his singing style would suddenly emerge on a Beatles song for one song. I'm trying to think of yeah. the song now, and you think, oh, there's some, okay, so, so the Beatles must have heard Tim Harden because they're, they are singing like Tim Harden for a song.
0: Well, he and, did if I, if I Were a Carpenter too, right? Right, yeah, I just heard that the other day on the radio. Those two, like I like Johnny Cash's and June's version of that. I'll oh think. yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, I mean, but you are, are a singular singer as well. And like when, so 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 that New York period was just a, a, a kind of a part of the evolution, right? So yeah. you're already writing songs. Mm. And these days, I mean, a lot of people covered these days. I think didn't they? Didn't yeah? Hasn't? But she was the first to record it. And no,
1: you know, she wasn't well known. She's not nearly. She wasn't nearly as well known. And at that time, as she became later, because that record sort of endured. The reason she didn't like Chelsea Girls was because after everybody recorded these songs, I mean, with her, and it really happened in one or two days. I don't know. I mean, the day I was recording, Lou Reed was there doing his stuff, too. And what they did then is they called in a string arranger and put strings on everything, Yeah. which is, and they're great, strings. I mean, they're really, the guy, I used to know his name. Every, every couple of years I look his name up because I want to re- try to remember but he was not i mean he had done some other things but this is this it kind of gave a longevity to it that and the fact that she had an indelible there was a, a quality in her uh singing the 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 lowness of her voice the deepness of her voice and and her German accent that gave it a a very noir kind of you know quality that that I think really affects people to this day, just on yeah. hearing, it, without knowing her story, anything about her. But her story, of course, is really um, interesting too. But but without knowing any of that, it's just pe- it really appeals to people.
0: I always felt like she had uh, 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 there. There's something about her phrasing that reminds me of uh, Astrid Gilberto, like mm. the jazz singer, the mm. Brazilian jazz singer. Mm. I know it's German, but there's a slight a slight dissonance to it, and her phrasing is very interesting. Is yeah. Of, unique yeah. well, she had but a, it also feels detached because it's german but it, it but it's very uh romantic somehow i'm not sure how it's unique you know yeah
1: yeah well she was
0: from Cologne, and they don't really speak they have their own dialect of german mm. so what was it like meeting lou reed at that moment i mean this that was a scene then did you go to the factory i can't want to know if jackson brown hung out over at the factory no i didn't go to the no, factory th- and lou i met lou at that session and as a matter yeah. of fact,
1: that night, we went to go see the Murray the K show at, at the RKO. And it was, I mean, and I, every now and then, I also have to look up this just to make sure I'm not making this up. Or I'm, I'm remembering it in some idealistic way. But it was Wilson Pickett, Cream, The Who, Blues Project, Wow, Jim and Gene, it was this wild bill where it was just incredible, kind of everybody possible on this bill, and and he uh, went with Lou, yeah, and Lou and, and, I, and and Nico. No, she didn't go. He just, just said he, he just said he was he was he had tickets to this thing. And he didn't, did I want to go? And I, we went. It was great. Um, <laughs> he had also um, he had also been at the first be in. We called we called them. I guess in in L.A. we called them love-ins. But the, it was the first, you know, gathering of the tribes, as it were, and it was in Central Park. And he, yeah. he had been there like a couple of days before. It was. I'm mean, trying to picture Lou Reed at a love-in, but really, you know, <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> he said uh, well, that- he said it was incredible. He said it was you know I think it was a, 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 it had never happened before. This is kind of the thing that was had begun happening, and a few months later. Uh, in Monterey, they had the Monterey Pop Festival, and there were these sort of gatherings that were in a way a show, a show of forth a force a show of strength you know in a, in yeah. the, count, the counterculture that was
0: really really notable yeah I, and and it was defining it at the yeah, time yeah it's interesting that you say about the birds and just about l a and New York that there were definitely two different approaches to yeah. psychedelic uh, you, you know that were happening yeah. you know yeah so when did you come back to l a to to sort of like become part of this crew out here well i had friends that i'd
1: already that were signed to a record deal you know i had i always just was like like i'd gone east to 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 see what was there and and yeah. i always planned to come back so i i guess i i, I was in new york for about three months maybe Oh, oh, and oh it. not no. not very long, you know. I yeah. I often think about what have, what would have happened had I stayed and, and tried. Well, yeah, to, that's tried what to, I mean. Yeah, yeah, man, it
0: would have been a whole different. What yeah. do you think would have happened?
1: Well, I think v- similar to what did happen, but 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 with it, a whole different set of coordinates. You know, I like in L.A. because um, you already had the songs. You were going. You know, I thought so, but it was a long time before anything happened. Yeah, By when I say I thought so, I mean I did expect something to happen. That's why I didn't go to Europe with my friends. I thought, well, wow, I would have done that. That's the other thing I think about: what what had I had I gone to Europe when I was eighteen? Because they're, yeah. that's so interesting and that's so full of information. They got sure. as far as, as they got as far as Afghanistan. Wow! And and one of them was on. As, eventually, got to A- India. And. Huh. And word word got back that he had died in India, you know, and that was one, by that time I was living in Echo Park and I wrote a song for him called Song for Adam. So... How'd he die? I think he jumped from the top of a building. Oh. Mm. In Mm. India. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think he was, I don't know what was going on with him, but he was always kind of a little bit barricaded away in his world. He was a little... uh, a little alone, you know, a bit alone yeah. in, in his world, but I tell you uh, what what I think would have happened is I probably would have had a band sooner. Had I got had been in New York, maybe. Right. I think yeah. so. Because what what happened in, in LA was that and and in Orange County, I mean, I I was um right around that time when I came back, my mother had moved to Silver Lake and so I didn't I didn't have to make that. I mean, I could live at home, which I did. I came back and lived at home. And my friends lived in Hollywood, so I had a car I could borrow and I could get around pretty well. Out in Orange County, it was um, also borrow your mom's car and drive to drive to Hollywood, but it was always, you know, drive back too. So, no, so all this stuff so that happened- So she moved to Silver Lake? Yeah, she lived in Silver Lake. and Your parents split up? Yeah,
0: my parents had split up out in Orange County. Oh. Yeah. So so then, okay, so you got a car, you're in Silver Lake, you're what, 19, 20 years old, you got a packet full of songs, it's 19, what, sixty nine seventy 70?
1: You know, trying to remember this, I just had a sort of a jog in my memory, I'm thinking of that image of my dad standing in the house, and it's like...
0: With Tim Harden?
1: Yeah, it's the wrong house, I'm thinking, what the hell is he doing there at two in the morning? <laughs> 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 Why am I... So my memory's not all... It's not perfect, but... Anyway, yeah. So what you're saying, I was like, I got a bunch of songs. Yeah, I always thought that I was about to make, a, about to make a record, and I. So I took part in a in a record. Uh, I got I was on Elektra, you know. I mean, I, w- yeah. I I wasn't signed to Elektra until this project, but it was a project that a bunch of us decided we would write. A, like Figure 1968, right? The band released um, the band. By the way, I'm rocking my band shirt.
0: Oh great! Uh, um, that, what that? What's uh, the music from Big Pink? Yeah, that's that's up.
1: That T-shirt is up on Cripple Creek. But yeah, right around the time yeah.
0: Big Big, P, um, Big Pink is released,
1: we think we need to record in the woods. We need we need a house. You know, we need we need to be in a house. <laughs> yeah. And when uh, we convinced Elektra Records to to do this, you know, to to let us, and we went all over the place looking for a, a, a likely place to become a sort of recording band in the who's words. we a producer for Electra, a guy named fraser mohawk who had who was a really good producer he'd produced the early um the first kaleidoscope records and actually he 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 produced nico's second album called marble index is that how Elektra. you
0: met lindley through him
1: no 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 uh i was just a huge i just loved the kaleidoscope but i didn't meet any kaleidoscope through him he just oh uh, he was, but you work with David Lindley, didn't you? By that I no, I, I, I met him eventually at the at a yeah, I met him through another uh, colorful character, a guy named Chesley Milliken. Uh-huh. Who was also dating my sister. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> But um You know Lindley was great because when I met him he was he's so Cool to younger people. He, I mean, he's a couple years older than me, but I've seen, yeah. seen it through the years to be really, really accommodating. Really, he asked me a bunch of questions about my songs and how I how yeah. played. And Chesley was, um, Chesley later went on to manage Stevie Ray Vaughan. He was good friends with the Rolling Stones. He was, he's, he ran a, he was a really colorful guy, an Irish guy. He ran a racetrack in Austin. So
0: what what transpires? So Are you looking for this house to be like the band, and you don't have a band, or you do have a band?
1: we became a band like everything Who? uh well there were three songwriters um there were there eventually there was and there was a guy from uh a canada uh peter Hodgson, playing bass and we got this guy sandy konikoff but eventually what well, we, we we told them we wanted to do was have a kind of a repertory company like a kind of like a, a recording place where people could play on each other's songs and make support each other in making the solo records. We are all interested in making our own records of course. And, but, and so they, they let us do this thing and um, it didn't really come to anything. They, a bunch of records got made there. I, I mean, a Lonnie Mack record got caught up there.
0: And, a later Lonnie Mack record. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And a record of um, Spider John Kerner, and a Dave Raker a Dave Ray record so uh-huh. those records got made but because, but they were they were like really had their shit together and they just showed up and made records in a matter of days and and borrowed our drummer say you know or you know like and uh Lonnie Mack was incredible he was like uh he was he was touring you know touring with a trailer in the back of his car and he just played roadhouses and bars and stuff he had an organ player with him Everybody showed up with a player of some kind. And they were all really talented people. We learned a lot from those guys, but not enough so that we then turned around and made this really great <laughs> record together. <laughs> For one thing, Elektra wanted us to make a record together, and we all wanted to make our own records. And we could have, any one of us could have spent all our time making a single record and making that, you know, a debut record of our songs.
0: But, you, but And you're just writing songs, writing songs? yeah. I had a lot of songs, and I and you know I wrote songs. Yeah, those days I probably wrote all the time. But well, Glenn Frey talks about living like. Where, did he have an apartment beneath you or something?
1: I yeah, I, my apartment was beneath his. I mean. I moved into the i he moved in next door to me and then I moved out of the place I was into a a, a kind of basement below him. So where was this? Where that, was it? That was in Echo Park. So after this recording thing I was describing about with Electra yeah, uh, I, we came back to town and I and I lived in um, Echo Park and and uh, started you know playing at the Troubadour Monday nights and trying to – once again just trying to get. Um, get get recorded get a record due. just
0: you just with the guitar or you got yeah guys yeah
1: so I never played with anybody except for Lindley briefly no actually I not even not even Lindley uh, I didn't play with Linley well i i i did I had never played with the band you know until my first record and that's the sort of thing that kind of amazes me now when I listen to that record and because I and I hadn't listened for until you know, I just hadn't listened to it for years until recently when I had to approve a test pressing. I had to sit there and play pay close attention through through the whole record. What was that like? I thought it was amazing because it was so, so much better than I thought it was at the time. <laughs> yeah, you at, know there's a couple hits on there. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. And I yeah. and I and at the time. I I wasn't sure it was very good. I don't think I knew because you're immersed in th- what you're doing. You can't really you you know you're certainly in, aware of the f- the flaws. You hear every mistake, or not that they're big obvious mistakes, but things that you wish were better.
0: But so didn't you play? After, you didn't play with any bands before that.
1: No, before that crew. That's, that's the other thing. I just almost you no. Know, I hadn't. I was in an abandoned high school. That was the other thing I wish I'd done. I wish I'd gone ahead and been in a, a garage band and played Gloria, you know, like with like sure. everybody else, you know? Yeah. <laughs> da, but you did yeah. I mean, No, I didn't. I was a kind of a, I played in my room, you know, I played songs uh, in clubs. Sure. I played and other people sang my songs, you know? So that I was yeah. pretty confident about You can still do a garage song.
0: band, man. You got a studio; just go get, <laughs> put put a roster of songs together. Get a list of the songs that you would have played in your garage band and knock them That's out. That's a good idea. That's <laughs> really a good idea.
1: <laughs> I see getting my friends together. and so Say, okay, now we're going to play. Yeah, Gloria. Well, yeah, get call up Crosby and have him come over. Actually when I met Dawes, that's what we did. These kind of things happen, jam sessions. That's what's so great about LA right now is you, you get together with people and you don't know who you're gonna meet. You might um meet um you know, I mean I met Mike Viola at Anara George's house and, and That guy's um, a he's a wizard. He's an incredible. Incredible yeah. musician and great writer and producer and
0: I like his records.
1: Yeah. He makes great records. And so I met Dawes before they had made their first album and then later I and it was at a at a jam. I guess it was a benefit. A bunch of surfers were going to go to Chile to Chile to, and were personally taking earthquake aid down to Chile. They'd surfed Chile and had made a bunch of friends, and they just were going to, after the earthquake, decided to raise a bunch of money and go back there and yeah, and and do as much good as they could. And this benefit was it had. Um, uh, Perry. Farrell was there from, uh, you know, <laughs>
0: that, that guy's a character. Yeah, well,
1: that's what made, like, what brought it to mind is like I was meeting Dawes for the first time, and I was I had to I had to split and go on, get on a plane later that night, but we started playing Gloria and called Perry in from the next room, and he jumped into the center of this room and did this version of Gloria that was unbelievable. But everybody can play those three chords, you know. Sure, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. But so like when you like when you got those guys together, I guess they became known as the section at some point. They some were, of them, they, right? Yeah, they they became they well yeah Well is not on your first record.
1: Right. Right. It was but uh, actually but Craig Durge and Russ Kunkel and, and Lee Skalar yeah. were the rhythm section and that's why it sounded so confident that's why it was so well played those guys had played together a lot and russell was the guy that a lot of people who played acoustically would go to 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 get drums on their record because he, he oh, could, i know he he's been such, around forever had such an incredible touch and i mean i tried it before i I I'd, I'd play with um, a drummer and get a, be playing electric guitar. And it was it was not good. It was not. I my like
0: my my touch on the electric guitar was way way off. And but was it But was it? It seems like there was a community a, around. Like I mean, I don't know what your relationship with Glenn was or with Ronstadt at that. I mean, how did you know Ronstadt when she was in the Stone Ponies or no? Yeah, that's when I met her. She was in the Stone Ponies. I think I I
1: got to go to one of their sessions. But what a was,
0: great little outfit they were, man! Yeah, she was
1: amazing. Yeah, she was incredible, and they were being produced by this guy named Nick Vinay, uh, at Capitol. And um, but, that, but was, that was the scene, right? That was no, but I mean that it wasn't the scene yet. You know, it became yeah. that troubadour scene became. It was a little bit later, but I think that's that's they they were they kind of got to L.A. Bef, before me, and they they. It's interesting to me when she talks about those years because um and she does talk about it in her autobiography and and i, I in her movie i mean she she she's interviewed about it and because the even then i mean l a was really a a draw for musicians who wanted to make something happen because it's where the record companies were and where the right. producers were and the musicians
0: right um and all that and there was all those great pla- the studio guys yeah there was this here. great
1: bass player named Harold batiste. Who also was on Dr. John's first record. Yeah. They were amazing yeah. studio musicians and all those guys, you know, if you could find your way into that music, the musicality, the way people yeah. played and how people thought of making records, because it was a big mystery how people made these things, made songs into records was like alchemy. I d I don't know I didn't know how it was done. I couldn't figure out. So Russell I met Russell because uh, Kunkel. Russ Kunkel. Yeah, because yeah. he was in a band with my one of my best friends, Ned Doheny, and Dave Mason and Cass Elliot. And he was just really again, he's one of those guys that's really kind to younger cats coming up and he said he said, Look, I, just so you know, I mean when you go to make your record, you know, you I hope you call me. I want you to call me because I want to play with you and it's like So I knew him so I could call him. So I did and that record is and you know, I booked him for a couple of weeks and we we made my songs into into records, you know, it was amazing.
0: Well, I mean, those for like on the second record too. It looks like everybody was on it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I got
1: I got to I I got the hang of it, you know. But that it <laughs> wasn't like, yeah. By that, so in the second record, I I started calling people. Who, I asked other friends and who to call. You'd say, you know, who do you get to play on uh, bass on this song? And he's saying, you might try Wilton Felder. And like, who's that? Oh, Wilton Felder. Wilton Felder played bass on "I Want You Back" by the Jackson Five. I'm thinking, yeah. oh, that guy. Yeah. I that guy! I love that guy! Love that! And so he's, but he's the he's the saxophonist. He's like the horn player from the um, Jazz Crusaders, the Hollywood Jazz Crusaders. Uh-huh. And um, incredibly musical guy. And I said, well, do you want to play? You want to play sax on my record too? And he's, you know, He said, no, no, I just do that with the Crusaders. But he's he's a session player. So all those guys support their jazz passion, you know, by working for whoever calls them, you know.
0: But by the time you do the second album and you I mean that first album seemed to establish a sort of Jackson Brown tone. I mean, d- despite the fact of not playing with a band regularly, those guys came together and sort of seemed to honor the vision of your songs.
1: Yeah, they they and and the odd thing about that first record is David Lindley's not on it because he was still in England playing with Terry Reed, and so even like the the viola part on that David Campbell plays on "Song for Adam" is a part that David had devised. I, w- I had played it with him on an earlier attempt to record in England. I'd gone to England and looked him up and tr- had had tried to get a, something going with him in a session, and I don't even know where those tapes are now because. Um, and that's a whole long, bizarre story so where, the, where the, the, the producer actually didn't show up that day. And that's the how Lost I, Tapes? That's how I found out he wasn't going to produce my record is he just didn't show up. <laughs> 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 Lily and I eventually, we played the song about a hundred times and then went, went across to the bar across the street. <laughs> but we bonded in that situation. And when I got back to to Southern California and when he was back, it was after my first record, and I, I I wanted to put together a band, and I wanted Lindley to play in the band because he was multi instrumentalist and could play all these different things, but he was so much better than the band was. Yeah, the band was a little bit. It was it just it wasn't Lee it wasn't Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel. It was you know a couple guys um, that played with Linda, but they they weren't nearly as uh, a ama- you know, they didn't have as light a touch. They didn't they weren't nearly as ingenious as Russ Conkle and Lee Sklar. If I'd had them, I, I it, that would have been the great band. Russ Conkle, yeah. Lee Sklar and David Lindley, holy sh I would have that would have been amazing. But they weren't available to me for many years because they were they were becoming the go to guys in the studio you know, studio But world. it's
0: just sort of interesting to me, like on the first like on the set so Lindley's on two the second album. Is that The House in Highland Park on the cover of that? Yeah. 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 And then the third record, you know, he's he's on that record. But you got all these people of the time that eventually went on to these huge solo careers, right? I mean, Dan Fogelberg, Henley, you know, like, um, mm. J.D. Souther. Uh, like, I don't, I've got a bunch of that guy's records and I, I feel like I should talk to him, but I'm not that familiar with him as as much as I should be. But he seems to uh been part of that songwriting thing oh yeah that no yeah we
1: were all really good friends and lived near each other i i met jd he was in a duo with glenn fry right and when it came time they sang on my well glenn sang on my second record i think he sang on redneck friend we were all making records at the same time and sometimes they recorded uh they recorded a song or two of mine and um,
0: what they do, take it easy, and what was they it? did the take Eagles? it easy,
1: and then they did a song called Nightingale on the first album too. A song that um, that that's a song that Jesse didn't want to play on. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, funny. That was the one he said. It was too major. It was too much of a major kind of song. But I think, <laughs> he, and I don't know why they did it. They did it. They they needed songs. They weren't the, they weren't they didn't have that many songs. They had which take it Woman. easy was
0: a huge hit. Was that your first huge hit, or was that was that was that after your song? That I mean, I mean like. That was after Dr. My Eyes was a huge hit. But it wow. was, I'd
1: say it was a bigger hit and more lasting. It's not odd because, yeah, Dr. My Eyes was... See, I... So there I was trying to put together a band and go out with, with David Lindley and I just i just wound up going out and I, I was going to be paying clubs anyway so I just went out with him and never, yeah. mind, never mind the band. Then it became a, a pathway into illuminating all these songs and not necessarily playing as a band. I mean, I like... I like what happens when a band plays a song because it's big, but it's not necessarily yeah. as interesting from song to song unless you really know what you're doing, unless you really have a lot of experience at bringing that arrangement. And I didn't have any arrangement skills at all. I just how know. are you going to duplicate what you do in the studio with like with all of these? I mean, it's crazy. Well, you how th- many people? I always thought the the only thing to do was bring the same people that played in the studio, or, or like or,
0: thirty or- people. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah, so. Yeah, you, know, you switch from song to song. You switch from <laughs> Jim Jim Gordon to Jeff Picaro to Jim Kelner. Yeah. No, you could call these guys because that was the scene, and all, and and you if you knew to call them, you know, you'd say, yeah, yeah. you'd say, who do I call for for this? And they'd say, well, try Milt Holland or like you know Jeff Jim Keltner. There are all these. I learned more about. I mean, what well, I was going to say, I learned more about drumming, but I mean, I I I didn't learn anything about drumming because they were all so good. I didn't know how they did what they did but i i knew who to call you know so
0: but like the pretender that was a huge album for you it seems like the first album the second album all had big hits and the pretender i mean i like that you use albert lee a few times that guy's a wizard yeah he's great man (laughs) but on the pretender it's like holy shit there's like 90 people on that record Lowell George came in, play some slide guitar. Mm, mm. Like, it, was it a party situation when you were in the studio? Well, what was happening? Sometimes, but but all but everybody knew each other.
1: Everybody was friends. I mean, yeah, I met Lowell before once again before I even made my first record. Yeah, and he was he told me that I should get Richie Hayward to play, and Richie Hayward's a great, 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 great drummer. Yeah, but there I was in my apartment with like a drummer and a drum kit. And acoustic guitar, and like I, it just sounded, why? like I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't. And he was used to playing in a band, so another again, he didn't have that kunkle sensibility of how to make the drums, yeah, you know, slide in under things and be supportive and play the quietest parts, you know. So yeah, all my attempts at playing with a drummer, I tried a couple times, but it was always involved like one guitar and a drum kit. In someone's den, you know, it just didn't sound right. right. It's like, yeah,
0: I know. You like what? Are you still friends with um, these cats? You know, like I mean, like Crosby. Do you you talk to Crosby? Um, no. (laughs) Did I pick the wrong name out of the hat? (laughs) 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 Yeah,
1: you picked. You picked the only only (laughs) (laughs) only. (laughs) <laughs> Only one that would have been a no, no. Yeah, um,
0: but 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 who's who's playing drums on this new record? You're, you're I so got about specific. four
1: four different. So look, there's two two ways of working sort of evolved for me. One was to have a self contained band, which is like the first album, and yeah. like and like my third album, like late, I saw yeah. I ever seemed like every other time I'd I'd go to the and the the other mode, which is to have not have a self contained band, but to be, call everybody you could. Every, call specifically the people you thought might be great on that song. So, yeah. so my second album had a bunch of different drummers on it, and my my fourth album too. Late thought and then this latest record is that the last two I've made have been along the lines of that, where I've got my longtime bandmate Fritz Luwak playing on a lot of songs, about half of yeah. them. But the but I also have Pete Thomas playing on a cut, and um. And I've got oh, Jay yeah. Jay Bellarose playing on a cut, and I've got. Um, uh,
0: so LA still like that because I talked to uh, 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 Flanagan the other night. He's like, "There's a, everyone wants to play and no one's playing. They're ready to go. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Because I'm trying to put a combo together to do something like with my shitty guitar playing, and he's like, "I can get you any what do you want? Well, Flanagan like, Flanagan can. Damn. He he can get yeah, you anybody to play." Yeah, he, he's a magical character.
1: I mean, we were talking about him yesterday. He, I yeah. thought he was going to show up at this party that I was at yesterday and bunch, a bunch of people that he has, he sort of mentored the, the, the Sean and Sarah Watkins from the Watkins family hour and sort of gave him a place to play and their hang that, that hang. I met so many great musicians and they're, they just, they just make such a great um, welcoming environment and, and their shows there at the Largo are just legendary and, and, yeah, And anybody would want to play there I think about it all the time I think I just want to go play the little room I'll go open I'll, I'll play like after some comedian does The big room I'll just go play You in play. the front room? In the I'll lounge? In, yeah I go play in there Just go play there There's no, By yourself? There's not even any mics There's only one mic There's like you barely yeah. yeah I would do that I've done that Well I've sat in with them a lot doing that And um,
0: my good friend Judy Henske Did some shows there um, Who does, Who's the female uh, singer Who's the woman on the new record?
1: Ah, like Les- there's one- Leslie Mendelsohn Yeah The one who That's uh, great I, I co-wrote um, The song uh, A Human Touch With yeah, her, yeah. her and her writing par- Partner Steve McEwen um,
0: Did Bonnie Wright Record any of your songs Yeah She did right Bonnie What'd she Bonnie This always would happen I'd I'd sit down with
1: It happened with Linda too And I'd, I'd say I got a song for you And I'd just play it for them They'd go uh, Okay, okay. Well, What else you got And I would play them a bunch of other stuff and then they'd pick something and bonnie bonnie picked a song of mine called for a while first she did a song of mine from my first album called under the falling sky and
0: uh-huh.
1: completely fixed that song i mean that song was one of the ones i thought was not so good <laughs> even now yeah. i mean i just thought that also it was just had too much again we we did it with congas and and uh I thought leap overplayed. Now I think I can see why he did that. But he played this, which is a kind of a place that some people would go to and jams, you know, and yeah. acid rock and stuff. I mean, just to go way, way out on a, you know, I, it just didn't need to be that way. Bonnie did it and and put a swing in it and played it more bluesy and kind of, yeah, the way and she. That was it. That was so great. And I mean, in in many cases, the songs that people have done of mine have then like just taken that final turn and become something really great. Whether it was Take It Easy, where they sort of made that song a much better song than it would have been had I done it, finished it myself and just done it, you know. But they just, by well, their arrangemental sense and their, and their ability to play as a band, and Bonnie had that too. She did Under the Falling Sky. She did a song called um, I Thought I Was a Child beautifully uh you know it, it, again you know she's she's one of those people she wrote great songs herself and then she began to just f- pick the best songs by various songwriters eric cass um john prine john prine you know and 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 just make them just amplify them in such a such a great way
0: well, what's the process man? I mean because like, you know, obviously, you know, you're you're one of the great songwriters. So all of that stuff, I guess what makes a great song is its ability to be interpreted in in many ways in in a sense. That, like if you're going to put a song out into the world that's got legs, I mean it's 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 sort of up for grabs in in terms of how any artist is going to uh to uh feel it,
1: interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. Right I think that's true uh, the song but there's two events there's this, there's the writing the song and then there's making a record out of it or making yeah interpreting as you say and and um I always I always learned from how other people did my songs, even Nico it's it, it, I mean as distinctly as she sang as 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 she was when I think when I go back and listen to the demo I made in that same season in that same like, yeah. period of time I was in New York I realized that she was singing the song the way I showed it to her. Like I oversang everything, so she really actually sounds like me, even though she's it's coming through this her, right her right. Because I'm going, I've been out walking, you know, like yeah I over yeah, yeah, yeah. overpronounce everything when I saw all this. Anybody listening to these old demos would say like, why is he doing that? Well, because as a kid, my mom said. Jackie, no one can understand you, and no one can understand what you are saying. Could you really pronou- enunciate? You know,
0: right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah.
1: So I'd over pronounce my words, and I'd sound like Richard Dyer Bennett or some Elizabethan, you know, yeah, folk, yeah. folk singer. But no, the the thing is it's that your
0: melody. It's your melody.
1: Yeah, and also I had to make it simple, simpler for her. She couldn't uh-huh. sing. Well, up, you know, not, and she wasn't going to swing it like that. She had to be. It had to be made, you know, a simple. Right. But in, in a way, that, what happens when somebody takes a song and, 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 and figures out how they can do it, there's a certain filter that goes through, their own way of hearing things. And the, these things are kind of lucky. I mean, like if, if, if Bonnie... So, I mean, I just... Ha- this happens again and again. Like Bonnie did, I thought I was a child, and I thought, oh, that's so good. Oh, that's yeah. so much better than I did. Let me and I yeah. just adapt their version. It happened with Greg Allman's version of these days. See, uh. by the time he learned it, I mean he actually learned it back when I wrote it. But then he remembered it the way he hears everything, you know. And so it just it almost like it being co-written by him because of the way he changed it, it's like it is his. It filtered through his sensibilities, and then. And he also Great slow, singer. He Great slowed singer uh, amazing singer. And he slowed it down and he played it. And so I, I by the time I recorded it, I wanted it to sound more like his version. So I didn't he <laughs> didn't play it the way I played it for Nico. I played kind of my version of Greg's version, but it was not even close. And that's the other thing is I could either I could either like learn how to they did it, and try to inform my own version, or I could just stop doing it. Like that's what occurred to me the other day, because Michael <laughs> McDonald rec- just re- has re- just recorded a version of one of my songs, and I was playing it from my singers the other day. I mean, she, she, he he recorded the which bar- one? The Barricades of Heaven, uh huh. Just on piano, vocal, just voice and piano, and it's it's so good, and it's it takes the... he. It again. Take, that song. Just takes another turn, yeah. when one more revolution, and that song is now like a Michael McDonald. I song. Even, it's a Michael McDonald song. I don't know how <laughs> I'm going to go around saying that I wrote that. It'll be like, <laughs> oh yeah, sure, you know, because yeah. you know, and, and and it's so good. I can imagine being on stage and getting and singing my song. The barricades of heaven, and yeah. one, and and then seeing an entire audience like after about ten seconds turn to the person next to them saying, "Have you heard Michael McDonald's version of this?" <laughs> 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 That's
0: what's going to happen. I don't, I don't need. I don't need to see that. But yeah. I don't know, man. It's. A, I mean, it's a. It's a. It's a nice problem to have. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, and also, like the way you sing is so specifically you and the way yeah. you phrase sings it's it's kind of right and you, you do all right you know you do all right with your songs <laughs> <laughs> thank you thanks yeah i don't, I don't think well, you the should be too- reason i became a singer is because that
1: these were the songs that i had a right to sing yeah i wrote them i like them you know like i wrote yeah. it i can sing it but really other than that why would you know I wasn't yeah. really a singer. I wasn't a singer. I don't, and I liked singing.
0: I really loved singing. Matter of fact, I was in. I liked singing. Well, I mean, what is it? But it, but but you sound like you. So what the what fucking difference does it make whether you think you're a singer or not? Right. Right, and what happens is the I mean well I wor- I've worked
1: at it. I've tried to improve my singing my whole the whole time I've been doing it. I've yeah worked with you know, a couple of teachers at, along the way at different times and also found out that the best teacher is singing for an audience every night. That's yeah, that's when you really find out what what to do in a song and whether you need to do that or not. You know, this I had this one teacher and I said I wanted him to come see me play and he said, Oh, I don't want, I don't want to hear you sing you know <laughs> the other thing I, I I said I said, but you know but I want to sing like uh you know I mean I said have you ever heard Ray? he was an operatic guy you know yes yeah. I, I said have you ever heard Ray Charles sing he says oh yeah yeah and Sammy Davis jr and I went yeah oh no 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 not Sammy Davis jr Ray Charles you know I had some <laughs> yeah. specific ideas no I mean you no one can. No one can really show you how to feel. You have to you have to become comfortable with what you got, and then and if you're going to tell a story, then people will accept who you are in that story. You know, and as long as you don't try to do something you can't do, if you try to sing in a way that you can't pull off, so I became a great editor. Yeah, and when I say great, I mean I. I, I became more of an editor than I of a singer so I would just try anything and try pulling yeah. stuff off and a lot of it, Some of it would sound really mawkish and like oh Jack, don't do that. You know, I listen back and think okay You know like and I you pick the pick the parts that work and eventually you've got some sort of a
0: uh, a version of the song that you can that's passable, you know, so When you go out with uh, with James, are you guys gonna just do the hits. What how does that work? I think I should when you put together I, a new set. I think for this show
1: I would definitely try to put together my better known songs. I mean, I I like playing songs that people have never heard and but that's if they come to see they've if, if they've all come to see me. Right. I really kind of have that 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 kind of you know command, you know. But uh, yeah. if they're there to see, if you're opening for somebody else, I think I want them, I want them to kind of, I might, I might do one or two of the new songs and the rest you're of You're opening? Movies.
0: What do you mean? It's a co-headline thing, isn't it?
1: I think I'm, well, I'm going on first, so I'm opening. No. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I don't know that it's co-headline. I guess, but hey, James is the most, he's the most, he's the coolest, he's the most gentlemanly person I've ever gotten to work with. He's so He's so welcoming and accommodating, but he's come on. He's James Taylor. He's (laughs) you're Jackson Brown. He's making making me feel like welcome. You know,
0: and I think well, maybe you guys have got to have about the same number of hits, dude. Oh, I don't know. What kind of what kind of hits though? James,
1: look, you go see James in in a in a baseball stadium, and you can hear a pin drop. (laughs) Can think about that. You're in Wrigley Field and it's yeah. absolutely quiet and he's playing his yeah. acoustic guitar it's like yeah he's got a kind <laughs> of a command that
0: yeah he's, he, and he musical and
1: then he's got the best band in the world you know and my band is uh, it's certainly my best band and 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 i've um i'm looking so forward to look to, to, to these tours you know i mean these shows with him it's one of the best Gigs. I mean, I did a couple baseball stadiums with him a few years ago, and it was really so much fun. And a lot of his bandmates are are best friends with my bandmates. too Michael Landau, Luis Conte yeah. used to play with me. I mean, Steve Gadd's one of the great drummers of all time, and Larry Goldings They're all people that you you go see in their own bands, and and they're yeah. they're like kind of a a band of assassins. They're all the baddest guys in the world, and so it's it and my guys too. My like Greg Leeson and val mccallum and yeah you try to you you think um i th- I, th- I think of it as like a really it's going to be going to be an incredible time but i have i have an hour to do you know i have i'll have this sort of opening period and hopefully we'll do something together too but um yeah how you feeling uh we are so excited to get to go uh to go at it, you know. I got to say, yeah. um, I'm feeling great. I'm really. Um, I've been doing these these uh, virtual recordings of songs in my my this room here, actually, just a few feet over that way. And uh, yeah, and I'm really enjoying it singing. And and I, I get to play with one or two people at a time. And it it's really kind of informed what I think I'm going to do because I'm well. I have a full full band to play the songs in full. You know, the full arrangements. I think that there's something about what i said about james having that incredible yeah. command with with yeah. just a few pieces and really quiet yeah. i want to try to do that and i want to try to do justice to my the my my people who will show up you know they'll show up in time they're not going to wander you've got
0: you've got you, i'm sure you share a few people oh yeah
1: that's what i think too yeah, i think a lot of people are you know we're we've yeah. some of the same it's people it's
0: going to be good it's going to be good how you feeling physically you got through that shit
1: yeah yeah it, it. I didn't have the COVID bad. It was. It was uh, like having the flu for me. It was not. I never had a problem with, um, with, um, breathing, breathing it. or anything. I just. It, yeah. was, it was okay. You know. No, I'm really good. strong. I'm
0: good. How you about good, you, man? Thank you. I'm all right.
1: Yeah. Did you get it? Yeah.
0: No, I got the vaccine though. You, got Did the you vaccine. get the vaccine? Yeah, I've got the vaccine. Yeah. 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 I didn't get it. I. You know, I. I don't. You know. I. I guess I got lucky. Yeah. Yeah it's good talking to you man thank you yeah. thanks for having me on yeah. the show man really a pleasure it was fun it was fun man it was really good to talk to you it was uh, it, it was uh, exciting for me I appreciate well, thank it thank you
1: hey let let me know or, uh, I keep my eyes peeled for any gigs you got coming up if yeah look- well,
0: I'm back I'm working it out you know I'm down at the comedy store again where you know I'm, oh, I'm yeah. doing I'm trying to figure out what the next big chunk is and see what I got to say and whether anyone gives a shit including right. me you know how it goes right right yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm, I'm gonna work on something with Flanagan, maybe do something with Largo with a little music and a little comedy. I'll let you know. That would be great. I'd love to see you in that setting. I'll let yeah. Tall know and I'll figure out you how like, to get to you. You should get Tall to come play with you. She does. We do she's done a couple of shitty yeah. gigs with the with these comedian bands, but I like yeah. if I'm going to play, I, I play okay. But if I'm going to really do it, I need you know I need someone like her and the pros behind me. So I, yeah. I don't look. Because yeah, you don't... get a bunch of amateurs going, it turns into chaos. Yeah, don't hesitate. Get the get the first the first stringers in there. Yeah, man. I'll see if they want to. Thanks, <laughs> man. All right. That was it. Jackson Brown. A lot right there. A lot of stuff. Knows everybody. The new album. Downhill from Everywhere comes out July 23rd. Uh, Dark Fonzie 3 is up on iTunes with the other two with me and Dean Del Rey. Uh, and I'm gonna, gonna rock out here for a minute, man. Like, I'm gonna rock out like an old man. 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 <laughs> La fonda Cat Angel is fucking everywhere, man. They're fucking everywhere, man. <laughs>